Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey everybody, how are we today? If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. Come find me after the service. Today's kind of a big day. We have a lot going on. It's Promotion Sunday for kids. We have a baptism. We have a new sermon series, a new liturgy. We're going to pack a few hundred boxes. At CBC, we firmly believe, why do things over time when you can do it all at the same time? All right? Sounds like great leadership to me, everybody. Um, We are starting a new sermon series today. We just got done with the Ten Commandments, and we've been building towards this for a couple months. We asked you guys to submit questions so that we could talk about how God doesn't just affect one day, but affects our every day. Because if we miss living out the ways and rhythms of Jesus right here, right now, we've missed a lot of the point of Jesus. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about questions that were sent in that we really know and care for. We got over 170 questions that were sent in, right? And my favorite one is this one. Why will Charlie not put on a new wedding ring? (laughs) I did a sermon on adultery with the Ten Commandments, and this one came in next. Uh, And it's my favorite question because the next phrase, I will donate towards that fund. That's right. Just give me that high roller handshake right out there. We'll be good to go, everybody. Yeah? No, I I throw that up there just to say that we got a lot of questions, and there's some really good ones. We're not going to be able to deal with all of them in the next five weeks. We're going to deal with a lot of them. But the ones we don't deal with will be season three of our podcast. We're going to hit all of them, and we're going to release it online, and we're going to walk through these and say, what does it mean about our relationship with God? And you've got to understand the point of this series. It's to show us that our relationship with Jesus is an intricate part of our day-to-day, but it's also to do something I'm really passionate about. We have got to, as a church, recapture the ability to have dialogue and disagreement. We've got to, as a church, recapture the ability to say, I don't know, but let's figure it out. We've got to, as a church, realize that some of these conversations have been happening for thousands of years. They didn't start at Crossroads, and we won't end the conversations. We've got to deal with the nuance of the world with maturity and wisdom. And so a lot of the questions I'm not going to have total answers for. I'll give some opinions, and I'll say this is what I think is beautiful about it, but it's a conversation that keeps going well beyond this space. It shows us that God is working. And and in the questions that we've thought through for thousands of years that we might not have full answers for yet, you know what it does? It helps me remember that God is bigger than me. It helps me remember that he's still working in us. It helps me remember that I need you and you need me as we see more of God together. It helps me see more of the goodness and beauty of God. And so we start that today. Let me give you a brief overview, and then we'll dive in. So today we talk about the problem of evil in our world. It's always a good place to start. Why does it exist? And then next week we're going to spend some time talking about the nature of salvation more specifically. I know lots of people that said they were Christians and now don't say they are anymore, and they've walked away. What if they don't come back? What do I do? What do we do as followers of Jesus with people that no longer love Jesus? After that, we're going to spend a week talking about mental health. A lot of questions surrounding mental health got set in. And then Labor Day weekend when nobody's here, we're going to talk about sexuality because God is sovereign. Um, but, but we are. <laughs> we're going to talk about how we live in this world, what's defining us and why, how we live with grace and truth at the same time. 
because that's a tough one. And then the final week we're going to spend on how we're good citizens in a culture that's, that's divided by politics. That's the next five weeks. So we'll see you in six weeks, everybody, okay? Um, but before we get into today's question, at CBC, we believe that God is real and he's near and he's here. And we believe that this place is different than the world outside. That when we focus on God, what we remember is that he is forming us, not the culture outside of this place. And in a culture that is so critical all the time, we remember in this space that, that we're not called to be critical. We're called to ask the question, what is God doing this morning? We like to say that at CDC, the moment in the space that we have as we follow Jesus, it, it's a call to look inward towards conviction. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to ask that we pray together. I'm going to ask that you pray. I'm going to ask that you pray for me. I'm going to ask that we find the goodness and beauty of God this morning as we ask some tough questions. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here to remember that you are worth worshiping, to remember that you are worth putting at the front of my life, not just in the middle of it, to remember that you created us for a purpose, and that's to live with you and live out your message of grace and truth and love every single day. As we tackle a big, broad question that's been around for thousands of years today, give us grace and give us wisdom. Give us an ability to see your goodness in a really difficult conversation. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you just say a quick prayer. You might ask the Holy Spirit this morning just to speak to your spirit. Ask you pray for me, that I might do a good job showing us God's goodness in a tough conversation this morning. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So I want to start like this. Do you, do you remember the first time that God disappointed you? And that question's tough because theologically it's not necessarily accurate. You got some people in their heads screaming at me, God doesn't disappoint us. He disappoints our expectations of him, which weren't fair in the beginning. I mean, I, I get it. But sometimes when we pray for things we really want, it feels like God is disappointing us. I remember that for me. I was in sixth grade. And I went to private school, all Jesus stuff. We wore ties one day a week and went to chapel, okay? And there was a friend of mine, his name was Kenny, small school, and Kenny had some mental handicaps to begin with. And so life wasn't fair for him from the get-go. <laughs> and then he went on a mission trip during spring break to Mexico, again, doing the Lord's work. And his bus, his van, fell off a cliff and tumbled. And then Kenny lost the ability to walk after that. And, and I remember... My little sixth grade, seventh grade group got together every day at lunch and didn't eat lunch. We prayed for Kenny because we knew God would heal him, you know? Because this just doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's not good. It's not right. And then God didn't. Still hasn't. I remember in that moment, growing up my faithful that and asking the question, where is God and why didn't he move? It felt like God was disappointing me. And when we talk about these questions about our faith, very real moments where our faith meets every day, one of the biggest questions and doubts people have about God being good is simply that we don't see goodness all around us all the time. And the way that looks is like this. God is all-powerful. This is a philosophical construct. God is all-loving, but evil exists. Philosopher David Hume, many, many years ago, said it like this. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? 
then he's impotent. If he's able but not willing, then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing, whence then is evil? It brings up this word, this $10 word called a theodicy, which literally, if you break it down, just means justifying God in the middle of evil stuff. It's one of the biggest questions and deterrence for people not believing in Jesus in the first place. They can't get past this. I don't blame them. People that see flooding in Kentucky and say, I don't understand how God can be good and allow this to happen. But it's not just a question for those people who don't know if they believe in God. It's a question that followers of Jesus have asked for centuries and millennia and all throughout the scriptures too. David in Psalm 43 says, Vindicate me, my God, and plead my case against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You're my God and my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning? Why must I be oppressed by the evil? Why, my soul, you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? It's not just a question that unbelievers ask. It's a question that I ask almost every day when I see evil in the world. Where is God in it? What is he doing? Jesus says in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble. Yeah. Then he follows with this phrase, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the tension that we live in. The tension that we live in about God being good, but we see evil, but the hope that we have, but it's not quite all the way here yet. So today what I want to do is talk about how we reconcile a good God with the very bad that we see all around us, the bad that we experience and sometimes even pass on. I want to use our time to talk through eventually how even the badness that we see can make us trust more in the goodness of God. And I want to do it through four different relationships. And it's going to start a little more philosophical, and it's going to end a little more practical. At least that's my goal. We'll see if I get there. We'll see if we get there together. But to ask this question and answer this question that has been talked about for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the first place we need to start is the relationship between objective evil and the existence of God. So what we postulated just a couple seconds ago would say that if evil exists, then this God that we define as good and powerful cannot exist. So if evil exists, therefore God does not exist. We have to start with this idea that if evil exists, God cannot exist. The relationship between objective evil and the existence of God. Genesis 131, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very, very good. It didn't say, I saw all that I made, and everything but this little plot of land over here was really cool, guys. This plot... I kind of fell asleep a little bit, right? It doesn't make this case that God messed up in any way. It says when he created, he created perfection. He created ultimate good. He created without the inference of, without the uh, influence of evil in the world. But here's what we have to know. That sometimes when we talk about God, we, we, we build this superhero God, not an actual God. that can do anything he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. But that's not true. God has limitations. And you got to hear me on that. When I say God has limitations, I mean literally that God can't do things that will make him no longer God. We have to acknowledge that his omnipotence or all of his power means that he can do all things that is intrinsically possible, not do all things that are intrinsically impossible. It looks like this. Again, we start philosophically, we're going to break this down. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That's the question. No. Because in doing so, he would no longer be God. God can't do things that will make him not God. It's a philosophical juxtaposition that often people ask but isn't true. I love what um, C.S. Lewis says about it. He said, it is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. 
Not because his power, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because I love this. Nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God. It's the idea that the scriptures make this case that God, we see it specifically in 1 John, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. We see it again in James 1, God cannot be tempted by evil and does not tempt anyone. We see it in Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord, to be like God is to hate evil. The Bible paints this picture that God has nothing to do with evil. He did not create evil and he doesn't like evil. So the question is, evil existing doesn't necessarily negate God, but what does it do? And to answer that question, we have to talk a little more about what evil does in the first place. It shows us that there is a time and space and place where evil didn't exist. I love what a philosopher Plantinga said. He said, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument against the reality of of God. C.S. Lewis says it like this, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What I was comparing this universe to when I called it, what was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? The argument here is evil doesn't necessarily negate the existence of God if he's not responsible for it. But the question we have to ask is why then do you have an idea of what justice is if we have no means from which that justice comes from? Let's do a Cowboys reference because the season started, so we're going to get 18 weeks of these now. Um, the Cowboys played last night, and the season's going to be pretty mediocre. Do you know why I know that? I saw the 90s Cowboys, and I watched the first drive last night. All right? <laughs> I know what a straight line is, and I see this crooked mess that we got in front of us. Go get a receiver, Jerry Jones. Okay, I'm done. All right? Um, but, but simply put, where we start is this idea that just because, just because evil exists, it doesn't negate the existence of God. Rather, what it does is show us that there is some kind of moral absolute or justice that exists that we're not reaching. And so if God didn't create evil and he has no part of evil and he really doesn't like evil, then we have to ask, where does evil come from? And it's relationship number two, the relationship between moral evil and human freedom. When God created all in good, There's this phrase in Genesis 2, the Lord took man and put him in the garden to work and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded him, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. What God does when he creates is he creates with the ability to choose. Deuteronomy says it like this, as his people are going into the promised land, it's kind of like a new birth of his new creation in Israel. It says in chapter 30, verse 19, I'm now giving you the choice between life and death, between God's blessing and God's curse. And I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. He says, choose life. And so here's where we get. God created this perfect world and has nothing to do with, doesn't like evil, but choice exists. Because love exists. And in order to have true, genuine love, you have to have the possibility of not love. Otherwise, we're just machines. My daughter and I play this game. It's called Smother Hug. Uh, it's as adorable as it sounds. She is three, almost four. And she says, Dad, can we play Smother Hugs? I said, of course we can. And I'll sit on the ground Indian style, and I'll pretend like nothing's going to happen. And I'll look away, and I'll look away, and I'll look away. And she'll start giggling and go to the other side of the room. And then she starts sprinting towards me, like laughing the whole time. And I will look right as she's about to get to me, and she lunges at me and tackles me like a tackling dummy, right? And she yells, smother hug, <laughs> and she stays on top. And then smother hugs always turn into something we call a smother trap, which is you just don't let go, right? 
So she'll yell, smother trap, and she'll hang on, and she'll hang on, and she'll hang on, and then I'll yell, smother trap, and she'll say, dad, let go, and I'll say, what's the magic password? And she'll say, you're the best dad ever, and I'll say, that's right. <laughs> My wife's like, please don't do that. That's conditioning her. I said, in the truth? Yeah, that's right. And that's good and great, and I love that she says that, but last week she came up to me, she hugged me out of nowhere, and she whispered in my ear, Dad, I love you, you're the best dad. You know which one meant more? If true love is going to exist, you have to, have to open the possibility of genuine choice. So the question then is, how does evil come into this? I think when we talk about evil, we have to recognize that it's not a one-to-one to to good. So let's use some, um, some science to help us out here. So let's define things, yeah? So... If we define cold, we don't know what that is in Texas, but let's pretend like we did. Cold is what? The absence of heat, as it's defined. Let's talk about light. Light is light, and darkness is what? The absence of light. It's not a thing on its own. It just exists because light doesn't exist. Cold simply exists because heat isn't there. I think um, when we talk about sin and evil in this world, It's just simply because choice exists, those places and spaces where God's presence is lacking in the world. And the natural, the natural idea of where the presence of God lacks is the presence of not God, not good. So where does evil come from? I think it comes from spaces and places where the presence of God is not felt. As we have talked about God in our world, as we've talked about how he created, he created this idea of the Old Testament writers talk about it, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, It's more than just a lack of fighting. We've defined it several times. We'll throw a definition on the screen for you. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what God created. This perfect space where his influence was fully felt, where everything worked together because he was the harmony that brought it together, and we reflected that in everything we did. So then if we're going to look at creation with this idea of shalom, this bigger picture piece than just not fighting and everybody's getting along, we have to define sin under that same construct. So sin then doesn't just become like a bad thing I did one time or lying to my parents or fill in the blank here. It's more than just moral ineptitude. Sin breaks the fabric of shalom that God created, sin is the the culpable disturbance of shalom in our world. And why that matters is as we talk about evil, what the Bible does is talk about how evil got on the scene and then one day how God's going to get rid of it. It all falls along this lines of the shalom that God created. And so the shalom is the goodness and the webbing together of everything in perfect harmony. Our sin breaks the harmony of shalom, and then heaven one day will be where God's presence is fully known, his influence is fully felt, and everything is fully blessed. What we get to here is evil exists because choice exists, because we exist, because we didn't choose God. And so when we talk about evil and God, we can say rationally and reasonably it's not his fault. We can say rationally and reasonably he doesn't love it. We can say rationally and reasonably that it comes from us not choosing him. And what's left is then evil. Romans 5 talks about it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because it sinned, entered through, you'd say, Adam and Eve. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander comes from us. So I think the first thing, we have to do when we have this question of why do bad things happen to good people in a very grace-forward way, ask the question, who is good? Because that's what the Bible does. The Bible 
doesn't say there's good people and bad people. The Bible says there's a good God and redeemed people because he's good. And, and so when we use this idea of good, it goes back to what Plantinga and Lewis were talking about. Who gets to define good and where does that come from? And are we intrinsically good all the time? Or have we allowed some of that shalom to be broken because of how we lived? I think when we talk about evil in the world, that conversation begins right here. That's the point of the scripture. We'll talk about it next week a little bit that we are responsible for the disturbance of God's peace in our world. And so the Bible doesn't talk about good people. It talks about redeemed people because God is good. Didn't have to, but did. Years ago, I was talking with a friend, and he was talking with one of his friends that was not a Jesus follower. They were talking about the Bible. And it got heated, and uh, this person yelled at my friend, uh, your Bible, your religion condemns me. And my friend said, it condemns all of us. Welcome, right? That's the purpose and point is we put the blame of evil where the blame of evil belongs. And then we look at the goodness of God through that lens. And, and that's fine. And that's good. We can end the conversation there and say, God's not responsible for evil. You are. Have a good Sunday, everybody. Go with God. But that doesn't really answer the question. Because there's different kinds of questions, you know. When we ask why do bad things happen to good people, yeah, we want a, a reasonable, rational, philosophical answer, but we also want to an answer for the pain that we have. We want to feel better. You know what doesn't make us feel better when we have pain? Reason. You've been married, I've been married. If you try to answer an emotional question with a reasonable response, it doesn't go too well. My wife will say, I'm hungry. I'll start listing off the options. What I need to do is open a bag of chips, throw it at her, and run into the next room, you know? We don't answer emotional questions with reasonable responses. It might be true and good, but it's not doing a lot of good. So we have to pivot a little bit from this question and say, okay, we can understand the, philosoph the philosophical answer and the reasonable answer and the rational answer, but what's the best answer to the problem of pain in our world? And that gets us to the third relationship, the relationship between our evil and God's action. I'm a fan of, of, of Breaking Bad. It's a TV show that you shouldn't watch because it's evil. <laughs> um, but I read an interview with the guy that starred in it, and he said there was a scene in that show that was the hardest for him. Season four or five, I forget. And basically, he is sitting there watching one of his friend's girlfriends die. And she's ODing, and he does nothing. And he said, after that scene, I wept, and I showered, and I wept again. We have to ask the question, if the world is broken, it's not God's fault, he made it good. What he does about it tells us a whole lot about his character. What he does about it tells us a whole lot about if he cares. John says it like this. Now the, world, the, the word Jesus became flesh and took up residence among us. And so as Christians, what's our answer to the problem of evil? Uh, part of it is it's not God's fault. But the emotional part of it is that God came near. There's a, <clears throat> a famous photograph of a woman in Africa. Lots of drought. It's by a guy named Templeton. And... She's holding her kid, and her kid's not doing well because of the drought, and he's eventually going to die. And it made him not believe in the goodness of God anymore. And, and in an article discussing that photo, there's a uh, philosopher and a professor named Peter Kreeft, and he has this response. He says, let's go back to Templeton's photo of the starving woman in Africa. All she needed was rain. Where is God? He said he was entering into her agony, not just her physical agony, but her moral agony. Where is God? Why doesn't he send the rain? God's answer is the incarnation. 
He himself entered into all that agony. He himself bore all of his pain in the world, and that's unimaginable and shattering and even more impressive than the divine power of creating the world in the first place. Can you imagine a God who created everything good, wasn't responsible for its bad, and then said, I'm going to enter back into this place that's broken and fix it. Can you imagine the, he didn't know pain, and he decided on purpose to take it on for you and me. But it's deeper than that. I think sometimes as evangelical Christians, we focus on Easter at the expense of everything else. Easter's good. Easter's important. Easter's great. Bring your friends and family. Uh, But I think we overlook the importance of the incarnation and how we live every single day, that God would enter into pain. But, but it's more than just he suffered in the garden once and got crucified. That's bad. It's literally every single day. Do you know the pain that Jesus had to walk in? Walking in this world, which is not the way he created it. There's a story in John 11 when Lazarus dies, and Jesus weeps in that story, and he weeps knowing full well he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He's weeping because of the destruction sin had on his friends, family, and creation. A buddy of mine who grew up in the area and... About 10 years ago, he came back and he said, hey, let's go see this house I grew up in. It was in Flower Mound. And I said, yeah, let's go see it. And, and man, I remember going over, there's a kid and playing and they had a, an above ground pool and it was just, it was awesome. I have great memories in this house. And we drove up to the house and it didn't look like great memories happened there. It looked like some squatters got in there, no kidding. I'd never seen that in Flower Mound before. Uh, the doors were off the hinges. There was spray paint everywhere. Actually, they were unlocked. So we were guys, we went right in because it's an invitation. And the house was dirty and disgusting and decrepit. The pool in the back had been filled in with just trash everywhere. And he walked through this house almost in tears because it's not what he remembered of his childhood fond memories. Every room we went into, he's like, this was not, this was not what I remembered. This is not what it should have been. This is not what it can be right now. That's Jesus. Every step of every day when he walked with us, he did it for 33 years. What does he do in pain? He meets us in it. That's nuts. That's incredible. When we talk about this problem, when we talk about this idea of a God who draws near, we have to understand that the God who draws near shows immense levels and measures of love that we don't see other places. That through drawing near and coming into this place, he cares deeply. And it's actually one of the differentiators between Christianity and all other religions All religions, all of them, whether it's this one, other ones, atheism, we all try to answer a couple fundamental questions about the human condition. We all want to know why we're here. We all want to know why injustice exists. And we all want to know what's going to happen in the end. And so every single religious or non-religious group tries to answer that question, whether it's Baha'i or Buddhism or Muslims or Mormons or us or atheists. We all try to answer that question. And the difference in the Christian answer is that you can't fix the problem you created. That's what God is for. The difference in the Christian answer is that God actually drew near to your pain and said, I'm going to fix it, watch me work, and I'll let you join me in that work. The difference in the Christian answer is the loving response to injustice that wasn't the fault of God. And it's not the fix that we can do ourselves. So Jesus drew near to die and to fix and to one day rid this world of the evil that brings so much pain. Last night, uh, my kiddo... When she <laughs> sleeps and she's not feeling well, she gets this cough and she just can't stop coughing. She's not in a fever, but she just can't stop coughing, and it's miserable. And so we have a monitor in our room, and it's like 2 in the morning, and she's half asleep, and she's kind of like moaning, you know? And she's kind of crying out, and she keeps coughing and coughing. And like a good dad, I let that go for two hours. And 
about 3.30, I went in there. I took this little lollipop that supposedly makes her not cough anymore and a bottle of water. And um, she's kind of half in, half out. And I said, hey, eat this and drink this. And then I'm tucking her back in to go back to my room to sleep because, you know, I got this today. And like I've said several times, an unfiltered Charlie's, an unemployed Charlie. We all know that if you know me outside of this space. And she looks at me and she says, Dad, can you stay with me? And I said, yeah, I can. Of course. It's this idea that this is what God did for us so that we might not suffer alone. God never promises that we won't suffer. He promised we won't be alone when we suffer. How do we answer the problem of evil in our world? Yeah, we answer it philosophically, but we also answer it emotionally. I love what Psalm 34 says. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Pain robs us from perspective. It rips it all away. It lets you believe that you're alone, that there's no purpose in it, that, that it's um, because you did something wrong. Guilt and shame take over. And the one thing we have to remember in the middle of our pain is that we're not alone because Jesus came. He said, I'm going to suffer with you. I know what you're going through. And one day I'm going to deal with it fully. And so when we have the conversation about the problem of evil, it's about morality and, and the existence of God. It's about the human condition. It's about God's activity. But more than that, and one question that you'd ask on top of this if you really can't understand the goodness of God is, okay, I see that. I see that answer. I understand it. It makes sense. But, but does there have to be so much pain in the world? That's a tough one. Like, we get the picture of just a little pain. Why do we need so much? Why do we need the floods in Kentucky? Why do we need the war in Ukraine? Why do kids have to get cancer, you know? Like, I, I get that evil is our fault, but does, couldn't God limit it just a little bit? And so the last relationship is the relationship between God's action and our understanding. And this one's tougher. Remember when I said that I'm not going to have an answer for every question? Don't for this one. I will say what I know. The philosophical way to answer this question is to talk about the way of inscrutability, which basically means that we don't know what God knows. In his book, The Miracle of Theism, J.L. Mack is a philosopher, and he asserts that there cannot exist, <coughs> that God cannot exist because of pointless evil, and so much of the pointless evil exists. It's not just evil, it's the extent of the evil. But what we have to understand in the middle of this conversation is I can't button all the buttons for you, and I can't tell you why these things happen to you, and I, I can't say that it's going to be really good in the end. I can't do that. But what I can say is that I don't know what God knows. What I can say is that I know that he's good, and if that defines the lens through which I look, I know that he's good, and this evil right now doesn't threaten his goodness because he's been so abundantly good because he stepped in when all of us tried to step out on God because he is good against our evil because he suffered with us. I know he's good. I just can't see what he sees right now. I think of this week. I think of this week and all the people and kids that started school. I think of daycare drop-offs for your firstborn. You know what I'm talking about, you know? And they're reaching out for you and you're walking away. I think of the most painful moment I've had as a parent, literally, is when my kid is three or four weeks old and they don't know pain yet and we're going to get them to get their shots for vaccinations. And you pin their little bodies down while these nurses shoot them with things and it's pain for the very first time and they look up at you with these eyes like, why are you letting these people do this to me? And they don't understand it's because I love you. It's because I'm trying to help you. And I'm not saying that all pain leads to your good. I'm not saying that at all. We're going to get there in a second. I am saying that we don't know the full picture, and God does. And if we know that God is good, it allows us a lens through which to see the evil in our world. It's Job's argument. The whole book of Job is when a guy that suffered unnecessarily, 
whole book of Job is about a guy that couldn't understand. He was righteous. Why? God seemingly hated him. And his friends and family were saying, you did something wrong. Repent. God doesn't really like you. All of these false statements. And at the end, when Job pesters God and pesters God and pesters God with questions you and I ask daily, God responds and says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstones? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, he basically says to Job, do you know who you are in light of who I am? You don't understand, do you? And while that doesn't feel like a complete answer, it's one that goes back to do we trust the goodness and the character of God in the first place, which is why the incarnation is so pivotal in our conversation because it's the truest, deepest expression of love. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We have to ask the question, why do bad things happen in light of God's goodness? And let me kick out two fallacies real quick. I don't think that God allows bad things to happen in our world because he's trying to grow you into a better person. <laughs> I don't think he needs you to get cancer so that you're more courageous as you evangelize. I don't think that's good God. Andre Agassi is one of the best tennis players in the history of the world, and there's a biography about him, and he says, I hated tennis. It's my dark secret. I really hated it. Do you know why? His dad used to make him hit, I want to say, uh, man, was it 2,000 balls a day? 2,500 tennis balls a day. His dad made him as a seven-year-old hit 2,500 tennis balls a day, 17,000-something tennis balls a week. Do you know why? Because he fundamentally believed that if Agassi hit a million tennis balls a year, he couldn't be stopped as a player. Was he right? Maybe. Was he loved? No. Agassi called his dad a monster. I know that God loves us. <laughs> doesn't want to see us in pain. And so we have to stop by telling people that the reason this is happening is because God's doing something even better for you. I don't believe that. One question that was asked around this topic was that if, if, if God is good, if this is happening, um, then why, why, why does it feel like people are telling me it's for my good ultimately? Why, why do people keep telling me that because evil is here, God is going to bring something better out of it? They say that feels trite. And I think it can and does as well. But what I do know when we talk about this conversation is that sometimes God finds good in suffering and you've got to understand the relationship. This is Romans 8, 28, right? God works all things out for the good of those he loves. It doesn't mean that all things are good. It just means that in an intrinsically evil situation where there is no good, God is able to bring something out of it. It doesn't mean you're going to look back one day and be like, that was so good for me. I'm so glad I went through that suffering. It simply means that God being better and bigger and more majestic than the good, than the bad, can bring good out of a place where there is literally no good. So what I think what's helpful in this conversation is not to reframe things like God's doing something better in you or that God's doing this so that you might have some unforeseen good that you wouldn't have, but to remember that I don't know God's ways. God is ultimately good, and one day the pain of this moment will pale in comparison to the goodness I know to be true about his character. I use the example of I was broken up with one time in high school. I was a senior. It was awful. I sat in my car and listened to emo music and yelled. You know what I'm talking about? Half of you do. And <laughs> very vulnerable time in my life. I thought I'd never get over it. I don't know if you've been broken up with. I thought this was, I'm never going to get another relationship. I will never find love again. I was not in love. That was 20, oh my gosh, that was 20 years ago, people. You laugh because you're surprised. That was 20 years ago. 
you know what doesn't hurt anymore? I'm going to break up. Because I have a wife and a couple kids that I like most days. It's a really beautiful existence. I think that when we look at the pain of the moment, not saying that God's going to do good in it or bring good or even attribute any goodness to it, I think we look at it through the perspective of eternity and we understand that in the light of God's goodness forever and ever and ever, the pain of this moment pales in comparison and fades away. The pain robs us of perspective and it's tough to remember that. Charles Spurgeon, preacher, said, have patience, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of time. Paul says like this in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I firmly believe that when we talk about the problem of pain, we handle it philosophically, but we also have to handle it emotionally. And so maybe our answer is different. I think the answer to the problem of pain and justice in our world isn't simply an explanation. It's an experience from the God who drew near in our darkness to love, comfort, and give hope. It's relying on the fact that we know that Jesus rose from the dead once and beat evil and promises to do it again. It's not blind belief. It's true. He's done it once. He will do it again. And in that moment, what we do with people that are in pain and there's injustice all around us is don't try and explain it away and don't try and say God's going to bring good out of it. I think we sit there and say God is good in the middle of it. I think we sit with people and we say, you're looking for an explanation to an emotional problem, but I think an experience from a good God will go a lot farther in making us see and recognize this moment doesn't define us. So what do we do in the middle of this question as followers of Jesus? I think we remember that, that we serve and worship a God that we can experience in the middle of pain. So I, t- I told you the moment that I felt like God disappointed me. Let me tell you the moment where an experience of God helped me in pain. First one I can remember. I was 20, I think, 1920. And I know what you're thinking, Charlie, you led a privileged life. Yep, God is good. All right, so I was 1920. My grandmother was sick. I was close to my grandmother. She always believed that I could be a preacher when most of the people in my life were like, I don't know, lots more qualified people. <laughs> they curse a lot less. So um, I was living in Guatemala for a summer. And I was coming up on my time there. I had a couple weeks left. And and uh, really sketchy in the mountains, so like no internet and phone connections dropped and I was teaching in a school and I got a call and I went to the phone and it got dropped and then finally got reconnected. It was my sister and she said my grandmother died and I was really sad. I was really sad. And I, and I went up to the top of this little playground area and I just sat there. And I, look, I did not speak fluent Spanish. I was far from it. I was like a four-year-old, okay? Um, so I couldn't have elaborate conversations. And these three sixth-grade girls came up with me and I said the best I could my grandmother died. They didn't say anything because I knew I couldn't understand it. <laughs> they just sat there, and they hugged me, and they wept with me, and that was it. And in that moment, the pain wasn't so bad. In that moment, I found hope. In that moment, I remembered that God cared. And that's our call as people that follow Jesus in pain. As maybe explanations fall short, but experiencing God in those moments are what we need the most. How do we deal with the problem of pain? We draw near to a God we can experience and we look forward to one day when that's all we get to experience. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called The Secular Age and he says that as Westerners, our highest goal is to prevent suffering. But I think sometimes when we enter into the suffering of people, it's how people most clearly see a God who cares. And so while it's not a fun call, it's a good call for followers of Jesus is to enter into the suffering of others. That's what makes us different. Not to run from it, not try and explain it away. By doing so, people see that Jesus is loving and that he is good and that this isn't our reality forever. So 
here's a fun-filled call for this Sunday morning. Find somebody who's suffering and show them the love of Jesus in the middle of it. Hard to do, but worth it. That's what Jesus did, you know? When he was suffering on the cross, when he forgave people, when he interacted with people, it shows us the beauty of God in a bad situation. I'll end with this story from two uh, famous martyrs in the 1500s, 1555, I believe, they were burned at the stake in Oxford. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were burned at the stake because they were Protestants in the middle of a time when the Catholic Church controlled everything. And the Protestant movement slowly took power away from the papacy and said, no, I think you've missed the goodness of God because you've confused the goodness of God with power for you. And so slowly the Protestant movement took the power away from the papacy and said, no, 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 God is bigger and better than what you see as his expression of religion and he won't stand for this. So the Protestant movement was how we are all here to this day. So these two men who were Protestants speaking against the powerful uh, Pope in the Catholic Church, as they were being burned at the stake and they were engulfed in flames, Latimer leaned over and said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. The hope of people that suffer together for the good of others so that people might see the beauty of Jesus in bad situations. That's how we deal with the problem of evil. And this conversation continues well beyond this morning. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for today. I just want to acknowledge that we live in a broken world. That's hard. And I don't have all the answers for it can't explain why most of the time, and my heart breaks all the other times. God, give us a heart that breaks for bad things that happen. Let us not get callous to it, and give us the ability to love well in the middle of it, to come alongside others so that people see a God who came alongside us. Give us an ability as a church to literally help people see the hope of Jesus in hopeless situations as we hang on, because one day it won't be like this anymore when God's influence is fully felt again. We pray these things in his name. Amen.